Welcome to the Script and Style Show, the web show where we talk about web development with the people that make it happen. Today's episode is brought to you by TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring. Know when errors hit your website with the context to find and fix bugs fast with TrackJS. Start your free trial today at trackjs.com. Hey there, welcome to the Script and Style Show, the web show where David and I talk about web development and the people that make it happen. I'm Todd Gardner from TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring, and my co-host David Walsh, creator of the popular popular blog, DavidWalsh.name. How you doing, David? I'm all right, man. I'm, I'm How's your week been? It's been pretty good, but I'm, you know, lifting the veil of the show a little bit. I'm fighting a headache, so if I say anything crazy, especially with today's topic, don't blame me. Blame the Excedrin. It is a very polarizing topic, as we've come to learn. It, yeah, it, it can be maddening, as you found out this week. Um, your little bit of March Madness was the following tweet. Talk idea. What if we've made a horrible mistake? JavaScript without NPM, Webpack, or React. H- how did that go over? <laughs> That that blew up my timeline for a good two days, um, and uh, the the beauty part about that tweet was that if you don't know me and you don't have context about the kind of things I normally talk about, you can read that tweet and not know what I'm saying. Was the mistake the fact that we used npm Webpack and React, or was the mistake the fact that we didn't use those things? And so I had people jumping on both sides of that argument. Uh, in a very long-lived uh, Twitter thread of both people agreeing with me and disagreeing with me on both sides of it. And so it was an argument that I literally couldn't win. Um, as the kind of culmination of the whole thing, uh, I actually got horse JS'd. Uh, so the horse <laughs> JS Twitter account you know, tweeted it, that talk idea, what if we've made a horrible mistake, JavaScript. Which, full disclosure, is actually what my point was. <laughs> my point was is that I was I had been reading some different code bases that day, and looking at problems that were being solved where there was astronomical amounts of tooling and frameworks and libraries to do relatively simple work, and uh, I was pointing the fact that we've created all of these problems for ourselves when we introduced these tools, when in some cases the problems that they solve don't exist in every code base. Right. And I think it's funny that the parody account seemed to get it more than (laughs) most other people. But the fact that you had so many passionate people pop up to talk about it um, shows how important the topic is. And when I was thinking about starting a podcast or show, this was the very first topic that I thought of that I thought was really important was tooling. Because I sort of sit here now and ask myself, as someone who's been in the industry for 15 years, could a young David Walsh make it in the current climate of the industry with all of the tooling that we have? When I started, you know, we'd have to deal with IE6, right? And CSS hacks and doing things with JavaScript that CSS should have done and does now. But, like... Would, would I be able to jump out of school, go to somewhere where they're using Webpack and they're using React and JSX? Like, could I jump in and do that? And so I think, I think that's why, to me, this is such an important topic. And 
speaking about jumping backward, let's let's talk about sort of the history of tooling. Yeah, it's we- been it's been a long road. We've gone through a lot of uh, of versions of what quote unquote modern JavaScript tooling should be. Right. And so when I think back of what tooling was at the beginning, it was none. <laughs> it was opening view source and getting notepad popping open with a bunch of garbled text, right? Like there always had to be none at the beginning. And then these items that I've been able to think of, some have replaced others, some we've used together in some form or fashion. But let's just go down this, this list that I created. So after none, the first thing I could think of was the UE compressor, right? Like we didn't, we weren't pulling in a ton of external packages, but the UE compressor took our code and crunched it down, right? And that was important because the internet speed wasn't always um, as fast as, as it is now. Yeah, it really enabled probably the first round of client-side applications that did more than just trivial little things. Right. So next, I thought of async loaders, right? And that's Require.js, um, Curl.js, Lab.js. The Dojo Toolkit had its own internal loader. But we started asynchronously pulling things into the page as we needed them, um, which can sometimes conflict with UE compression of, you know, put it all together and put it out once or grab things just as we need them. And there are people on both sides as to which is more performant. But in a way, this, the concept of async loaders was solving a particular problem created by the previous tool, right? So the idea of uh, JavaScript compressors, UE compressor, the Google compressor, all, all of those things, um, they enabled JavaScript apps to get bigger than they were before. Because right. you could take more scripts doing more things and more code and smash it down and deliver more things to the browser. And so the problem that that enabled is now we started sending a whole lot of stuff to the browser and we needed a way to like handle that. And we didn't always want to ship, you know, many, many hundreds of kilobytes of JavaScript down to the client if we didn't need them all the time. Exactly. So next up, we came into NPM. And Which I was uh, corrected on Twitter that the correct pronunciation or the correct spelling of that is in lowercase, despite it being an acronym. That's a, that sounds like a branding thing. Yeah, I, I, I agree. <laughs> but suddenly we're like pulling in all of these packages um, instead of linking off directly to CDNs or downloading them um, specifically or whatnot, right? Now, NPM is super useful, but as I think you are going to tell me, there's a dark side to uh, NPM. And and I shouldn't say NPM specifically, it's just the most used in the JavaScript world, but anytime you're pulling in packages from a package manager, um, give me the dark side. Right, so package managers, like NPM wasn't the first package manager. There's package managers in every, um, you know, well-developed programming ecosystem. Prompt. Somebody will probably take reference to that. Of I'm saying some some ecosystem that doesn't have a package manager isn't well developed. But uh, the problem with package managers, first in general, is that they tend to create single points of failure. Is so if npm goes down, you're stopping lots and lots of people that don't necessarily need to be stopped. Uh, the hilarious example of this is is GitHub, which GitHub created a centralized point of failure 
on a de- an intentionally decentralized technology of Git. And so everybody, so many people's work gets stopped when GitHub has a problem, even right. though the technology based on it is is supposed to be decentralized to get around this problem. It was one of the main reasons that Git was created off of subversion. Um, but specifically to NPM and, and kind of a, a gripe I've always had with NPM is that you're trusting NPM to maintain the continuity of your builds. So my package, my my source code that I have in my repository doesn't include all of those NPM modules. It, it's common practice to not check in your node modules directory because it's huge and deep and it's you know fragile to do that sort of thing with. And so I don't check that in. And before I get anything going, I have to type NPM install to pull all my packages in. Great. Except that if what I get back from NPM install today is different than what I get back tomorrow or what you get, then we don't have the same continuity of the build. You can't build the exact same output source from the same input source. And so you're trusting some other organization to maintain that for you, which I tend to not be very trusting of other people, especially when it comes to software. And I'm not sure if I have ever really reconciled my trust that NPM is going to give me the exact same thing every time. Well, as we saw last year, NPM might not give you what you want anyways because someone could remove their package, right? And another point of failure is when LeftPad got removed, all of the internet blew up because so many packages relied on that specific package, right? So if you're relying on someone else's code, it might not be there. So that's another point of failure that you can find with package managers and NPM. If you, like, if you take a step back, though, think about all of the people who use packages on NPM or you know any other system where they don't ever review the code, right? So, like, say you wanted to create a, a anything with sensitive information, whether it revolves around Bitcoin or login, anything else. That package, no matter how popular it is, no matter how open it is, it could have a piece of code in it that sends everything that you send to it to some other party. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And, and that's, that's not even theoretical. I've seen that happen before. Right. So, again, that's not specific to NPM or JavaScript, but that's something that you know we can run into with tooling. No, but it's it's a cultural problem in the overall JavaScript community is that right. we trust that because something's on NPM that it's good. Right. And, and it's not. Like software is of varying levels of quality and trustworthiness regardless of whether it comes from NPM and regardless of whether or not of how many stars it has. Sure. Uh, if you're bringing in somebody else's code, you're now responsible for that. And every bit of code that you introduce has either direct or indirect consequences. Uh, either it'll have a direct consequence if it doesn't do the thing that you need it to do or it, it creates other problems and has indirect consequences of now you have this external risk of, of code you depend on. What if it goes away? What if it changes? What if it becomes unsupportable in the future? Um, and what if it just disappears? What if it does something malicious? All of those risks exist in your software um, one of the things that has become more and more true to me as I've, as the so- as the pieces of software that I work on age, as as my projects continue to get older, is that the more dependencies you take on in general, 
the less maintainable anything you build is. Right. So if you want to have something that you don't have to touch very often and that you don't have to, you know, keep running, it, it doesn't take a lot of effort, try and get as few dependencies as you can get away with. And one of the ways you can get fewer dependencies is to, you know, maybe you don't need an external tool for that. Maybe you can learn how they're doing it and and copy it in, you know. You don't need LeftPad. You can see how LeftPad was implemented and build your own LeftPad function. Right, absolutely. So that's NPM. Going ahead with the history, though, next for me came Grunt and Gulp. Uh, and so we went from compiling to loading things in to loading things in externally to NPM. And then we started creating task runners in JavaScript. And what I would say about this is that this sort of came in during the explosion of Node.js, right? Like we always had tasks that we needed to run if you, if you were working on any medium to large size application. But suddenly we were using JavaScript to do that. And are, are you a grunt guy or a gulp guy? I was, I was both. So Pick the, thing side, might be little, the thing that might be I'm gulp now. Okay, I was ahead. grunt. I, I'm now gulp. Um, the, the thing that, about this that, is that it wasn't particularly new. It was just new to JavaScript. Right. So like at the time when these things were coming out, the projects that I was working on all had build scripts. It's just they were build scripts written in Make, and there were build scripts written in, in Ant, and there were build scripts written in another thing that I was using called PSAKI, which was a PowerShell-based one. So like I was already doing all of these things. It's just now I didn't need another language to do it in, which helped facilitate to have more people specializing in JavaScript, right? Before these things existed, you couldn't be a pure JavaScript developer because you'd have these other tools that you had to interact with, right? You had to uh, you had to update your builds using C Sharp, or you had to update your builds using Bash, or or, right. or whatever. This just exposed those capabilities to people who were specializing in the JavaScript space. Amen. And then lastly, we get to today, which for me, all I ever hear about now is Webpack, right? Um, and I guess one thing that I would add in with sort of the web, the, the Webpack or the current age of tooling, I'd add Bobble in um, because a lot of, you know, if you want to use JSX. I haven't heard of that one. <laughs> Bobble? Well, if you want to use JSX with, um, with your you know, React applications. Oh, oh, ba Babel. Babel. All right, sorry. I'm right. sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I so, was like, Bobble. Is there a new thing called <laughs> Bobble? I haven't heard, like, a bobblehead kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's a fork by some guy named Bob. Um, <laughs> Babel, you're right. Um, and so, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with Webpack. I'm just going to say that up front. But whenever I bring up Webpack, or whenever I, whenever I have brought it up, and like Sean Larkin's got a laser pointed at my face right now, he's ready to shoot. Um, what I hear about it is that Webpack configs are really difficult, or can can be very difficult to write. So, for example, I tweeted a while back, "Hey, someone send me a crazy Webpack um, config." And they did. And it wasn't just some like random person doing some weird thing. It was for like a big open source project. And I was like, holy shit, 
there's a lot going on here. There's a ton going on here. And again, that's what prompted me to think about where we are with tooling right now. And maybe it helped prompt your tweet a little bit. I mean, it does. I think there's, there's two parts of that, right? Um, there's the intentional complexity that tools like Webpack are, um, sometimes they create a more complex interface than they need. And I think they've solved a lot of that. Uh, I believe Webpack 4 just came out and I haven't spent a lot of time with it, um, but supposedly the interface or the, the configuration has gotten considerably simpler. It also broke a bunch of things when they changed their interface, but I, I guess it's gotten a bunch uh, loads simpler. Uh, but there's also the accidental complex or the 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 baked in complexity of what we're doing is a complex thing. The concept of build tooling is so diverse, and so there's just so many different things that different companies want to do in different orders. Sometimes they need to stamp version tags on it. Sometimes they need to do replacements. Sometimes they need they want to use this kind of compressor. Sometimes they want to use this kind of load module. Sometimes they produce source source maps at different phases of this of the production steps. There's just so much differences in how every shop wants to do it that regardless of what tool you use, the fact that if you're going to start down this path of essentially creating your own compiler is what I kind of liken it to, is you're creating a compiler for what you want to do for your application. You're going to compile whatever your source is in down into the package that you want to deliver to your clients, and then you're inventing all the steps. When you set down that path, you're creating a bunch of complexity and a bunch of friction and a bunch of risk for your project. Um, now, there's lots of great reasons why you need to do it, right? But there's downsides of doing it. Like you're you're going to create a ton of, of other problems in your development flow that didn't necessarily need to be there without introducing these things. Right. And to echo what you just said, it, it, a lot of this comes down to the individual developer and the individual user. So I want to make it totally clear that I'm not hating on Webpack. I just bring it up um, because it seems to be the most popular new tool out there. Yeah, Webpack and, seems to have the mind share in this space. Right, absolutely. So you being the error tracking expert, <laughs> you've probably seen a ton of tooling and the output of tooling. So let's sort of transition into talking about some of the pitfalls of having all of this tooling. Um, I'll let you go first. Uh, okay, so... Let me, let me just share a personal story. There was a, a, there was a project that I was on for a number of years, and this was before the era of Webpack. Um, Grunt was starting to come on the scene. We, this project would eventually migrate into Grunt, uh, but at the time, we had written our own build tooling using PowerShell. And... Uh, the build tooling did a, a whole bunch of, of complex things that we need to do. This was a, a large single-page application. We used Require.js to do async loaders. We pulled in tons and tons of stuff um, to make this application happen. And it was it was big. Like, a lot of the reasons why we did these things were good and valid reasons. We were trying to figure out a way to scale a single repository, a single concurrent project to 50-ish developers concurrently. 
And there's a lot of problems with doing that. Just people not stepping on their on each other's toes, people not like corrupting the core DOM or, or getting in each other's way. Uh, we built a bunch of tooling with those things in mind. Um, and I think those are good, important problems to solve. Like without these sort of tools, we couldn't have solved those problems, but they created their own problems. So one of the most troublesome parts of our build tooling was this concept called the bundler, the bundler, bundler. which we even you know gave it like a, uh, a 1960s Batman theme to it. Like we took a photo of the Riddler and renamed it the bundler. And it was just a joke in our chat rooms of when the build broke, it was always the bundler, the bundler got in the way. And it was because it became such a common thing that, that the development tool chain can be fragile and it can break when you have so many developers touching so many things that they may not understand it. They'll check something in that that breaks one of the rules on how you've set something up, and their bundler fails, and and it it takes everybody down because the builds are broken. Um, and so, the point of all of this is that when you introduce these sort of changes, you're creating friction in the development process. All of these people who are now able to work together are not able to work together quite as effectively as they would be without these tools, right? Is you've slowed them all down. And how you implement that and how how many steps you put in the process creates more and more friction. Now, again, this is just the downside. It might very well be worth it for the benefits of being able to scale up. But we need to recognize it's there. We can't like stick our fingers in our ears and just pretend that these tools are the silver bullet to software development and it's all goodness and you should use it every time because there's cost to everything that we do here. Absolutely. I, th- I feel like I've worked on, I shouldn't say I've worked on, I've inherited many projects over the years where I come into it and I see this tool that is sort of like a fringe tool. It's this new up and coming thing. It's the different thing. And I asked someone who was working on it before, why are we using this? And they'll be like, oh, I just wanted to try it out. And I feel like that sort of thing needs to stay in your spare time. I'm not a fan of adding things to projects just for giggles, right? Because that comes down to something we'll talk about in a little bit, maintenance. But let me jump on to a couple of thoughts that I've had with regard to the downside of tooling. The first is that Recently, I've been writing a lot more JavaScript for tooling than I have been for the end client. And for me, that's sort of frustrating, right? And maybe it's just because I've been, I started in the industry when none of this stuff existed and every piece of awesome JavaScript I wrote created an awesome effect on a website. Now I'm bogged down in a lot of server side work. And I guess that's just a preference, but even if you're a front-end developer, you're going to have to know about all of this stuff. It doesn't matter whether you like working on it or not. It doesn't matter if the site that you're working on is small or big. Like You kind of have to know about all of this stuff right now. And that leads to the next one, which is just fatigue. It's one thing after another after another. Where it's like, well, how does this work? Oh, well, it uses that JavaScript utility. Oh, you need this Node version. Oh, you need to have... Babel X version. It's it's so tiring, you know? 
It's like when you buy something and it doesn't work and you just like shake it and like, why won't you just fucking, you know, like that's what we want our JavaScript environment to be as front end engineers at least. And when it's not that way, it's sort of off-putting and tiring and it can sometimes sort of jade you to your job. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh, I, I had a headache at the beginning of this and it's just getting worse. Um, and then lastly, maintenance, right? Yeah. No one, no one enjoys maintenance and every little thing that we add to our project creates maintenance, right? So maintenance, software maintenance is the biggest cost in any software project. Like what irritates me to no end is when I see developers arguing about, you know, whether it can increase, you know, the developer time, um, you know, by, you know, such a slim amount or, or developer beauty or, or, or these sort of terms um, because the effectiveness of a developer to write software is important, but it is not by any means the biggest cost involved in software as far as what the, the business sees. Ultimately, most of us are writing software for a business of some kind. And that business is investing in the software. They're, they're putting money down saying, by having this capability, we are going to make some money. And so we're going to put that money down. When developers pick up that money and say, great, we're going to build it, they don't always think that like this thing is going to live for a while. So like there, there are projects that I've built that are still running today, and they're based on Backbone 0.9, Require JS, and Grunt. And like they will continue to run for a very long time because they're making the business quite a bit of money. Um, and, and that's what's important to them. But what's concerning is that are these tools sustainable? Like, could we hire a JavaScript developer today to pick up and run with those tools? Is the documentation going to be available for Backbone 0.9 to continue running with that? Or are these companies signing up to basically run the treadmill forever and constantly upgrade to version, to version, to version, even when they don't have any features they want to add? Like, from their perspective, the software is done but are they being forced into this path of constantly having to upgrade their tool chain just so that when it does come time to, to do a rewrite or to, to add new features four years from now, that their software isn't so archaic that it's going to be a full rewrite. Because that's, thought, what, that's that... what the business is like freaking out about. It's like if you come to them and they've spent, you know, a million dollars building a piece of software, which isn't by any means a ludicrous amount of money for a business to spend all in millions and millions of dollars. Um, if, if you come to them and say, listen, I think we're going to have to rewrite this thing from the ground up. Like we can't find anybody who will work with backbone. It's all about react. Now, if you tell them that they are, they're going to flip, they're going to be pissed both at you for telling them that. And at their last run of developers for building in tools that, are they're being told is archaic now. I thought the code was the documentation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that line will never get old. <laughs> All right. So with that in mind, <clears throat> going back to your tweet, how can we get to no tooling? 
I think it comes down to the right tool for the job. One of the most common like root causes I've ever that that hap- that is from a failed project or or a project that maybe didn't do as well as it could have is that we didn't apply the correct solutions to the business problem, either because we didn't understand the business problem or we didn't know we didn't have a wide enough uh, selection to pick our our solutions from. Um, not all business problem not. If you spin up a new JavaScript project and you're automatically bringing in React and Webpack and uh, NPM and like this, just like you don't think about the cost of those tools, then there's a huge class of problems that you're creating for yourself without recognizing or without thinking that um, do you have the problems that they solve? Uh, Like personally, I have solved a bunch of very complex, very important business problems with some HTML and a 500 line file of vanilla JavaScript, or maybe, you know, a little bit of jQuery here and there. And it's much simpler to write. And it's much more evergreen in the fact that that code, as it was written four, five, six years ago, any developer could pick up and run today. And nothing has really changed in it. Like it's a script tag on a page running unminified JavaScript because the savings of minification just weren't worth the complexity of introducing it. It's like when you go from, you know, a 20K file to a 2K file, like it was only 20K. Like eh, it doesn't it doesn't matter for this page. Um, I think you just upset a whole bunch of people by saying that as well. <laughs> Probably. Don't tweet that. <laughs> when, it's, when it's one file on a page. Like the entire page weight is under a hundred K like at that point, does it matter? Does it, does it? (laughs) Don't don't, don't read it out. (laughs) It's, you know, not just those specific tools we're talking about. Again, it's the stuff inside of it. It's bringing down packages, which are, you know, sometimes are just one function that you're pulling in from NPM or if you're, pulling in a specific loader for Webpack that you might not need. All of this stuff is going to come at a cost and all of it is going to drag you down if you don't manage this stuff properly. Right. So I guess my ultimate message behind that tweet and behind kind of my general philosophy on software development is that if you really have a big project that needs to coordinate multiple, like lots of people doing a lot of JavaScript, doing more complex things that needs to support a wider way of browsers. There's tons of really great tools that you should bring in and solve real problems for you. I'm not hating on Webpack. I'm not hating on NPM. I'm not hating on React. Like those tools all solve important problems. What I'm saying is that not every web page has those problems. And so you don't need to like use them as this silver bullet solution to what you're trying to do. And often as developers, we see like as software developers, writing software is the hammer and every problem is a nail. Sometimes software projects just should be smaller. We should solve smaller problems. And when we solve smaller problems, we can uh, use less code to do it. Uh, maybe that giant application that you're having so many people in could instead be 
five really small applications, really simple ones uh, that solve parts of the problem. Uh, and in each one, you can make it easier to understand, easier to bring somebody new in, and easier to maintain for the business in the long term. I totally agree. And it, like, ultimately, for me, we, I think that you've brought up some really good points about how to minimize tooling or how to safeguard yourself. But when I read that tweet and when I think about tooling as a whole, I, like, I don't have the answers. It's super easy to it's super easy to tell people we'll use what's best for you. But in general, there is a tooling fatigue problem out there that as someone who's been in the industry as long as I have been, I don't know how to solve. And even scarier, I don't really know what's next. Is the next thing a like beefed up version of Webpack or do you think we're going to go backward and make things simpler again? I have no idea. I I don't know. Like, I, I don't know how to solve it either. The, the pace of change is concerning. Um, as one kind of thing is, is so today, nobody really talks about backbone JS today, but I still use backbone JS for some projects because it solves a certain pro- kind of problem really well, and it is small relative to what it does. And most importantly, it's done. I think done, the value of done is grossly overrated or underrated in, in web development. Is It's like, it doesn't change anymore. It's just like, nope, we're done. It, it works. It does what we need it to do. It's not going to change anymore. The documentation is done. The API is done. Here you go. This is what it does. And I think that's fantastic. It's not going to move your cheese on you every six months. It's not going to reorganize it to go with whatever the trendy API is today. It like It solves this problem and it solves it really well. And what it is today will be what it is two years from now, four years from now, 10 years from now. Um, I think there's a lot of value in that that is is underrated. I feel like that's cheating. If you're using a tool that's done and isn't being a pain in your backside, that's cheating as a web developer. That's my superpower. That's how I'm able to, to <laughs> ship a website really fast because I do it with vanilla JavaScript, jQuery, and Backbone. And I don't, I don't, you spend, don't, I don't spend time building a, a build tool. So there's this, there's this little app that I built for TrackJS, which is called, it's the quiz. So we go to some software conferences and we have this, this web page that we put up with a JavaScript quiz. And so we have like a bunch of questions about really obtuse bits of JavaScript and it's multiple choice. It's just kind of fun, meant to trick people and be like, oh yeah, JavaScript is weird. It does, does some things you wouldn't expect. And that's a web app, but I totally cheated building it because it's a web app that was meant to work in one place and one place only. It runs in Chrome on this little like computer uh, that comes with the conference booth on this projector that runs at this resolution. Like the styling is built to run at that resolution and that resolution only. Like if you resize it locally or try and do it on mobile, it looks like crap. It doesn't, it, it just doesn't do it at all. And because I know it's running on Chrome, I like just use like the native Chrome APIs that like I know are available. I don't safety check for things. It's straight up vanilla JavaScript. It's about 
400 and some lines of code. Uh, you can go out and you can look at it. It's like it's a, uh, a you know, a JSON array of all of the questions and the answers, and then just a little bit of JavaScript to pick them up and draw a little bit of UI with templated strings. And that's all it is. And that's all it needed to be. But it was an incredibly valuable tool for us. Um, it still is today. And we just, I didn't do any of the things that you're supposed to do, quote unquote, supposed to do to be a good professional web developer. But I didn't have to. They didn't. They weren't a real problem for this use case. And so you just don't do them. The, the, the best way to go faster, either, either uh, make your code go faster or make you go faster is to do less work. Like it's the only surefire way that will definitely make you go faster is just to do less things. I'm if you all can decide, I'm all. <laughs> if you can decide which things you're doing aren't actually adding any value, you can go way faster. Just don't do those things anymore. It doesn't matter if it's popular. Just don't do them. I hope that Chris has a, has a JavaScript comment that says best if viewed in Chrome. <laughs> Somewhere <laughs> in this project, it's, there's a problem. So I, a while ago, I actually bought the domain JS Happens, which is kind of like, <laughs> and, and I actually going to take that app and I'm going to like scale it up and like make it work. And I'm probably going to like use React or Vue to do that. But I feel like that's fine. I'm not like eroding my message at all because now that I'm making it available to a wider use, now I'm going to use a tool that solves a real problem for me. Whereas before it, it didn't solve any problems for me. Sure, and that's the most important part of tooling, right, is solving those problems. My key takeaways are I have no idea what's going to happen next. I don't know which way tooling is going to go, whether it's going to get crazier or it's going to get simpler. Uh, the, other, the other thing that I think that you said a few times now that's super important is that use the tools that you need to make it work and don't use things to be fashionable. I've seen it too often, and it causes way too many problems. How about you? use the right tool for the job spend like spend more time up front thinking about the problem you need to solve and what tools you need to make to to make solving those problems easier that, that's that's the key message here do you feel like you've exercised everything from that tweet <laughs> into today's show i think is there so. anything else left to add I think I've I've squeezed all the water from that stone that could possibly that could possibly be there. Um, it got like there were so many people who had something to say about it. Like the folks from Webpack um, were super interested. That uh, let me see if I can find that. I can't look it up right now. Join us next week where we discuss. Todd saying that 20K doesn't matter when 2K is the other option. <laughs> As that blows up. So yeah, so so Sean Thomas Larkin jumped in, who's obviously one of the webpack. And he he took he did he thought I meant the opposite of what I did, that I was saying that it was a terrible mistake to not use webpack. And so he had jumped in with a whole bunch of stuff and I had to kind of burst his bubble and say, Hey man, listen, like I didn't expect you to jump in on this because I, I was actually not shitting on webpack, but on build tools in general. And and then he you know took it in his in the direction you would expect it. And then other people jumped in. Uh, so some people who I know who I've I've worked with and talked with, uh, who all had their own perspectives. So people who sometimes think that you should never use vanilla JavaScript because you 
it, it's bad. And other people who have, are more aligned with um, kind of my curmudgeonly attitude and are like, uh, so uh, my friend Mark Rendell said, I found pretty quickly I can go from, I can justify doing this with a little bit of jQuery to um, that he can, he can accomplish all kinds of stuff with just a little bit of jQuery and no NPM or Webpack or anything necessary. Right. Uh, and that he doesn't see any problem with that. And that kind of aligns with, with what I, with, I t- tend to think, but now I look over this thread and I actually have no idea which people actually agreed with me and which people didn't because their comments were vague to the point that I don't know which way they were thinking. You know, I don't think I've inflamed people that much since I last defended modifying native prototypes on JavaScript objects. You, you defended doing it or you, yeah. you told people not to do it. I defended it. Oh, that sounds like a good topic. We should yeah. talk about we should talk about monkey patching native objects next week. Well, we we're not going to be here next week. Oh I'm yeah, like, I'm, I'm yeah. Spring break. Todd gone wild. I know. I'm going somewhere where there is not you know three feet of snow on the ground. It's going to be glorious. Awesome. Well, I think that's a that's a jealous wrap on my part. <laughs> show. Thank- joining Todd and I. We are off next week, but we'll be back in two weeks. Send us your ideas for people who you'd like to see or topics that we'd like to discuss. And again, I'm at David Walsh blog on Twitter. And I'm at Todd H. Gardner on Twitter. Good day, folks. Later. The Script and Style Show is recorded and produced by David Walsh and Todd Gardner. We'll see you next time on Script and Style.